stories after the lecture today. So, as we begin our study of the last part of the book of Jude, we saw last time that it was a book written to warn the church in every generation, really. There are apostates, those who have professed to embrace the faith, and yet they walk away and leave the faith and often remain in churches. They have infiltrated churches and continue to distort what is actually true and biblical Christianity. The message of this brief letter to all believers is that we are to contend for the faith. Jude tells us that the apostates we contend with are ungodly. They turn the grace of God into a license for sin. And they deny the authority of Jesus over their lives. And they will be judged with severity. We saw last time that... There are a few examples of God's judgment of apostates in the past. We saw the nation of Israel as they wandered in the desert for their unbelief. They had so much light in his presence and his miracles. The angels, talk about all the light they had, abiding in heaven, left their abode in their rebellion with Satan. And then the rebellion as well as sexually deviant men of Sodom and Gomorrah. So other revealing truths uh, about these apostates is that they tend to be immoral sexually and that they reject any authority over them. Nobody's going to tell them what to do. And they revile angelic majesties, whether they're good or bad angels. So Jude continues in verse 11 by giving the example of three Old Testament apostates. He's driving home this point. He does this because what was true of every apostate in every age and every generation is the same today. So the first one is uh, the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude speaks specifically of these three men, as I said, because all apostates in every era emulate this kind of behavior. Jude begins by saying, woe to them. So many Old Testament prophets began their prophecies that way, woe. And Jesus, of course, to the Pharisees said, woe, as he pronounced condemnation. And Bethsaida and uh, Chorazin as well. <clears throat> in other words, there's going to be great severity in God's judgment. So what is the way of Cain? We all know Cain was the first murderer as he killed his brother Abel. But being a murderer doesn't seem to be the point here. Not every apostate murders people. Rather, Cain rejected God's way of salvation. You recall that God accepted Abel's blood sacrifice, and it would appear that God had made it very clear to mankind that just as an innocent animal was slain by God to provide covering for Adam and Eve from the fall of man at the very start, the way of salvation always required a blood sacrifice. <clears throat> but Cain thought, I grow food, I do this, that's what I'm going to bring because that's what I want to bring. And this was unacceptable to God. Cain brought the fruit of his own works. How he, this is good enough. This was not acceptable to God, therefore God rejected a sacrifice and the sin and anger that he then had, he took out on his brother and killed him. The point to grasp from this example is that every apostate follows the way of Cain, and that they reject God's way of salvation. It has always been by faith. Those in the Old Testament look forward to the perfect blood atonement sacrifice. We look back at the cross. Old Testament people, as I said, saved the same way. Sadly, though, there are entire religious groups 
and denominations all under the umbrella of Christianity who have gone the way of Cain and they insist that salvation is by your own efforts, your own merits, by your own participation in the things they tell you you must do in their particular denomination. Then there's the way of Balaam. That's the Old Testament example of a man who was greedy. He was hired by a king to curse Israel. You know, he tried and he tried, but God wouldn't let him do it. So he came up with another plan to take down the nation. <clears throat> and he shared that with them because he wanted the money. Like all apostates, there is a love of money, and they do their ministry to make money. We read in 2 Peter 2 that they are characterized as having a heart trained in greed. The rebellion of Korah, this was the man that led 250 other men in a revolt against God's authority uh, of Moses and Aaron. And God judged them in such a horrific way, having the ground open up and swallow them alive. Uh, Korah and numerous with him, and the rest were consumed by fire. Number 16 tells us about that. So Jude tells us apostates are like Korah. They reject, they reject the authority of what the apostles had taught. And therefore, they'd also reject any pastor or elder leader in the church and if they're teaching what the apostles had taught. So present-day apostates also want no authority over them. They are men and women who have no accountability by anybody else. <clears throat> then he goes in to use word pictures. He's really driving this point home about apostates. He says they are hidden reefs uh, in your love feasts when they feast with you caring for themselves, like rocks that aren't seen by a ship that cause a shipwreck. The same is true of these apostates. They are obviously uh, present for the communion service at the church that you was writing this letter to. And as you recall, back in the day, they typically had a potluck meal at the time of the uh, Lord's Supper. We know the problem in, in the Church of Corinth because the wealthier were getting there sooner, eating all the food and then getting drunk, and the slaves and the poor came late and there was nothing left. So people were not sharing the food, as they said, and getting drunk. And just like hidden reefs are not really easy to spot until they do great harm, so apostates are not easily spotted. They carry out sinful actions, they live, worship among believers, but they really only care about themselves. And they can cause a shipwreck for many in their faith. And then there are clouds without water. Like a clouds that blow by the wind that appear to have rain and they're just empty. Farmers who are desperately waiting for rain for the crop that they've planted, see it looks like a rain cloud and the wind takes it away and a drop of rain doesn't happen. There's nothing. It looks so promising, but it was empty. And so it is with the apostates. They make big promises. They talk like they have all the answers, but they leave people empty. There is no substance to what they're saying. People turn to such uh, these people for spiritual help and direction and are often crushed by the emptiness of their empty words. And then he calls them dead, fruitless trees. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Now, most autumn trees have no leaves, that's why we call it fall, and all the leaves are gone and they look dead. However, apostates don't just appear to be dead, they are spiritually dead. They have never been born again. They are lost and they will experience the second death, the lake of fire. They have no fruit because they have no life within. And how sad it is that people like this 
who claim to be teaching the Bible and truth from God are often listened to by so many undiscerning Christians. I recall one such apostate from years past with a massive following and a massive church problem and all the popular beautiful people went there. And his definition of sin was having a poor self-image. And that was the message that he gave. Think positive, be positive about your life, about yourself, kind of the same old stuff coming around again and again. Dangerous waste of time to even listen to these lifeless teachings. They are wild waves as of the sea. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame-like foam. If you ever go to the beach after a really big storm or a really windy day and you look along the shore, it's all this garbage and stuff that the, the waves have washed in and left all this garbage in their path. And immoral behavior and blasphemy and how they talk of Christ and, and things of the Bible are like that. They just wash up their shameful deeds. That's what they leave in their path. Beware as you listen to ever popular people on TV and radio and they're in our Christian bookstores books as well. And this is the warning Jude is giving to us. They are also like wandering stars. Now stars in heaven have always been the major way ships navigated. Of course now they have all kinds of electronic things and it's not the same. But nonetheless, how they know north and south and where a constellation is, is how they had direction. And they appear like wandering stars that, like a shooting star, it's there and then it's just gone. So there's nothing to benefit from it. One Bible teacher put it like this, like these false erratic stars which flash across the sky in brilliance for a moment and then disappear into an eternal night, false teachers also rise and fall. In a few brief moments of brightness, they attract many people to their false light, only to vanish suddenly into eternal darkness." End of quote. I'm sure many of you can think back through the decades of your life of different <coughs> ones you've heard uh, over the years who have taught false truth, or false, that's oxymoron, false and error, not the right truth about the Lord and his word, and they've built huge empires. And, you know, 50 years later, empires are gone. They're gone. But those who have been faithful to the word of God and taught his word faithfully, people are still listening to those messages and being built up in the faith. That brings us then to verse 14 through 16, the prophecy of Enoch. It is also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you go back to the book of Genesis, I mean really far back, to read about this godly man, Enoch, who lived in a world that was ever growing in wickedness that would eventually be destroyed by the flood. <clears throat> and Enoch lived a very long time, and he never experienced death. I mean, the Bible just said he walked with God, and he just walked on to heaven. That's the way we all would like it to be. <laughs> but that's not how, that was Enoch's experience. So, once again, Jude now quotes from a non-biblical book that was not an inspired book by God, and therefore is not included in the canon of scripture. However, it is God that led you to write a quote from Enoch that was accurate and true. Jude speaks of the prophecy given by Enoch 
given long before the flood, that the Lord would bring judgment to all who reject him. And this will end, the end result will be this kind of judgment for all the apostates. We'll experience, he says, the black darkness reserved for them forever. What a horrific thought. We have seen in many of our studies that Christ is indeed coming again to judge the unrighteous, those who distort the truth, exploit people, and turn the truth of the grace of God into a license to live in whatever way you choose to live. Many judgments have come and gone from God throughout the years, from the flood to countless other ways. But the New Testament tells us that Christ will personally come back to this earth in the great and terrible day of the Lord. We saw it in our studies of Joel as well. And when he comes, he will come with many thousands of his holy ones. His holy ones that can refer in scripture either to angels or saints, which are people who have been set aside, made holy. We have seen just recently in our study uh, that Jesus returns to earth with his holy angels and all of his own on that day when the winepress of the wrath of God is poured out as the nations of the world gather to fight and destroy Israel and he comes back as judge. <clears throat> you know, it's the patience of God that delays his coming as he is waiting for all who are his own to come and repent. Peter talks about those who mock this second coming of Christ and believe it has absolutely no relevance. They're never going to stand accountable to anyone for their behavior. And look at the doctrine and teaching of evolution that you came from whatever. So you aren't accountable to anything or anyone or any higher power. I mean, so what do we expect when that's been taught as truth? No one will escape the judgment of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, as I already read, to execute judgment upon all. Notice the all the alls in that verse, and <laughs> all the ungodly and all of their things. No one will escape. Paul speaks about this horrible time of judgment when Christ returns to earth in 2 Thessalonians. There will be torment, eternal destruction, forever banished from the presence of the Lord. I don't think the world has any idea the restraining influence that believers have just by our very presence in this world and in our culture. And once that is not here, that will be horrific. But you take away no presence of the Lord forever for eternity. It's, it's unimaginable. Christ will pass judgment on all who haven't come to him, and all are guilty, and all of their mocking jokes against the Lord will be judged every ungodly word. Every ungodly deed and thought will be brought to light. To further clarify, Jude closes this section about apostates by saying in verse 16 some further information about them, that they are grumblers. They are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. <clears throat> this is the only time this word grumbler is used in the Greek New Testament. So you look at Greek literature of the time it was written, and it was used to speak about the complaining, murmuring, whining, complaining. Underneath the true heart of such apostates, there is such a discontentment, and it shows up in the endless complaining that they do. The apostates Jude speaks of are those who complain. They complain about the standards of God. It's impossible to live that way. His commands, there's no way anyone can do that. 
One can't help but think back to the endless complaining done by Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. We don't like the quail. We don't have meat. The quail is too much. The manna, blah, blah, blah. You know, on and on and on. When they just saw miracles every day was the norm. <clears throat> We're commanded in Philippians, to, as you saw in your lesson, do all things without grumbling or complaining. I'm sure we all have that down, Pat. <laughs> Be hospitable without complaining. Oh, that's tough, too. <clears throat> You know, it's so easy to get sucked into a life of complaining, but it is sin. It is sin. <clears throat> this is the behavior of an apostate, of an unbeliever, who can't stand God's ways. Yet every time we complain, we are in reality saying, in our heart of hearts, that God isn't good. I can't trust him. Uh, we're denying his sovereignty. We're denying his wisdom when we complain about the circumstances he's brought into our life. As if he doesn't exist, or as if he couldn't do anything about it, if this one slipped by him. <clears throat> so I exhort you, along with myself, to deal with this sin every day. Isn't it amazing? It's so hard to strike up an evangelistic conversation with a total stranger in line, and yet, well, from experience, I can talk very quickly to a stranger about a complaint. Never stand behind me in a line, because this line will not move. People will have left the store, and we're still standing here. Anyways, I thought I can speak so freely like that, you know, because we have in common complaining. And then, they also find fault. The words used in the Greek tell us that these apostates find fault with really the situation in life. That's why they're complaining. They don't like their circumstances. They don't like what has happened, and so they rebel against God, who is overall. And I've mentioned these type of people before. A tragedy happens in their life, <clears throat> and you have a choice with a tragedy. You're either going to run to God in your brokenness, or you're going to become angry with him and want nothing to do with him for letting that happen in your life. Even believers who are honest with themselves, we struggle when hard things come into our life. We have to keep reminding ourselves of the truth of who God is and what his attributes are. And he never changes. And he is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our obedience. They are following after their own lusts, as Judah has made that very clear. The apostates <clears throat> display their own lust in their immoral lifestyles and in their greed, lusting for money and things. They speak arrogantly, ladies. Never listen to any teacher who tries to impress others with all the great things they've done for God. That's a huge red flag. Bye-bye. Turn it off. Close the book. That's the opposite of a godly teacher who knows that they have nothing to boast about. If God uses anybody, it's just because he chose to use them. <laughs> Not because they're worthy or a special gift to God's people. And flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage, whether it's just trying to get a following or trying to get people's money. How many people on the radio have you heard, this ministry's going to close if you don't send the money. You have to send the money. Now I'm like, let it close. It's okay. <laughs> say whatever they can say to try to get things for their own personal advantage or their own ego to be built up or their own fame at some level in their own minds to continue. So, how to be safe from the impact of these apostates? They're everywhere. They're in every church. They're in every Christian organization. Remember the words of the apostles. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. If a believer is going to counter all of the very 
easy-to-be-believed error presented in a deceptive way, you have to remember the Word of God and what it says. Knowing the truth of God's Word is what protects believers um, from the lies that are being taught. We have to be students of the truth of the Word so we are not sucked into error. And then Jude gives specific teaching, teaching that was given by the apostles. He says, remember God's word in verse 18 that they were saying to you, the apostles, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. The teaching from the apostles made it very clear that during this present time, during this church age, the last days, there would be those who mock the truth of God and live how they want to live. And Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3. Paul says it in Acts and in 1 Timothy 4. People who are just going to turn, wanting their ears tickled from believing doctrines of demons to, to that. Not wanting to hear the truth. The church of Jesus Christ has been warned that this is what's going to be common in the church age. It would be filled with false teachers teaching error that mock the actual truth of God's word. What's different about apostates is that they know the Bible because they once claimed to believe the gospel message of the Bible and then turned away and rejected it. So these in particular have a greater awareness of how to mock or how to address people who, for many of them, in their own minds, they think, oh, you poor, weak, narrow-minded people misguided and actually believe the Bible is truth. <laughs> apostates have been set free from such narrow-minded people in their little worlds and their little narrow lifestyle. They often think of themselves as superior in intellect as they attack the Bible. And then recognize their actions. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Jude is talking about these who cause division in the church. They make a distinction uh, between themselves and others in the church. They often speak as I said, as if they were more spiritual than others, they have a more elite experience than others, they have things that others don't have. <clears throat> and we sometimes see this among those with many degrees, not always, behind their names, and so we are obviously brighter than other people. But Jude says that in reality, these people are worldly-minded. Rather than being spiritual persons, they are simply operating in the world of their own thinking and their own fleshly desires. They do not have the spirit in them. They are not Christians. All believers have been warned to beware of such people. We must not let their lies trip us up. We must stay daily in the truth of scripture so we recognize error when that little red flag goes off in your mind and you know, turn it off. And keep a strong relationship with Christ. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Here's a real key to the discipline of our Christian walk. So what are we responsible to do? Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is a command. But how do we obey this command? We already know that God's love for his own is something we can't earn, we can't impress him, we can't merit it. It is unconditional love. He loved us and gave his, up, his life up for us on the cross. He loves his own regardless of their spots and wrinkles that he's trying to iron out. It would seem that Jude is reminding us that we must always be alert and aware of the truth of Jesus' amazing, 
unconditional, unfailing love for us. Jesus states in John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see the correlation there? There is obedience. In these verses, we see that obedience to the word is remaining in his love. Here is an important fact that I suspect that all of us can uh, attest to, that when there is sin in our hearts, we are holding something because we can't let it go, what somebody said or did, or we are consumed with worry, or whatever the sin, and we are just not letting it go. You know when you're in that state, you really don't sense his love. There is a distance. I mean, you know it. You don't feel close to the Lord. Our sin messes up our judgment, and that's when we become a target uh, for the error that is out there. The error that would propagate that your attitude is justified. And so you should continue with that type of attitude because you have a right to feel that way. If we lose sight of the amazing doctrine of the grace of God in salvation, then we forget his love for us that has been so clearly demonstrated by the death of Jesus on the cross. When we live each day really aware and thinking about his amazing love, we keep ourselves in his love and we obey his word. You know what, he is enough. We don't have to keep seeking some new religious happening. We can be satisfied in him. How, how serious it is, is our sin when we don't deal with it. You just think of Ephesians 4 when he talks about don't let the sun go down in your anger because you give Satan an opportunity. You let yourself open to error and to lies. Whether it's the sin of worry, like I said, lack of forgiveness, or something you think you have to have in order to be happy, so now that is an idol. We make ourselves vulnerable to Satan's attack when we don't deal crisply and immediately with our sin. Moment by moment obedience, even in the really little things, it really matters. Even when nobody sees, no one in your family even knows. Moment by moment obedience. There must be a discipline then of living each moment conscious of his presence, conscious of his amazing love. How can we keep sinning against that kind of love anyway? So how do we keep ourselves, from, uh, ourselves thinking about the tr truth of God's love? He says, build yourself up in the faith. It is clear that we have, to have, we have the responsibility to discipline ourselves to grow spiritually. The faith, once for all, handed down to the saints, must be the center of our lives. It is the word of God that reveals who God is, his mind, his plan, how he wants us to live, how we, are, we can honor him. And the more you read it and study it and meditate on it, the more you become aware of his will and are conscious of his love. And then we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in the context of this verse or chapter, or this book, that indicates he's talking about the spiritual gift of tongues. To pray in the Spirit means that we are praying according to the will of the Holy Spirit. And the more you know scripture, the more you know how that alters so often how we pray and our motives for praying, because we wanna line up our prayers in the truth of scripture. There are so many wonderful prayers and scriptures that really show us how we ought to pray for ourselves and for others. My favorite is Colossians 1, 9 through 12. I mean, it's a great way to pray for somebody. 
that they be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they please him in all respects and bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power. I mean, you know you're praying in the Holy Spirit when you're praying this for your children, your loved ones, your yourself. And the more you know God's word and the more you study and read other prayers and, and make observations, you can pray according to his word. And the more you think about his love, the more you're protected from messages that distort the message of God's truth. And then he says, waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. The thought here is not anxiously waiting, like it's translated in my version. It's eagerly looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. One day, those who know Christ will experience fully his mercy when we are standing in his presence. It is his mercy that brings sinners to salvation, and his mercy will take us all the way to glory because of the atonement that Jesus made on behalf of those who trust him. In other words, we as believers have a blessed hope, and we are to continually remind ourselves of our salvation based on the love shown to us by Christ and when he died for us. He will return for his own one day, and so we are to live in light of that truth. So I wonder, do you ever think about today might be the day? Whether it's in death that he calls us home or calls the church to be with him. I mean, we really ought to live. What kind of conversation are you having if he were to come and call you home as you're screaming? <laughs> as you're saying whatever in a car. You know, I mean, really thinking that it could be today. It should make a difference in how we live and how we speak. So how are you doing in this spiritual walk? Are you in his word every day? And I don't mean, you know, you did your 15 minutes of a Bible read. There is thinking, there is praying in the will of God. I, are you eagerly awaiting his return and living in light that that could be today? Thinking about his amazing love and provision of salvation will keep you in his love and protect you from the onslaught of false teachers and smooth-talking apostates who are all around us, and there are new ones coming up every year. So how do we help victims who are the victims of apostasy? Very briefly, in 22 and 23, Jude speaks of three types of people we ought to minister to. First of all, those who have doubt and are wavering because false teachers have impacted them in some way. It is our responsibility to show them mercy. They need someone to come alongside of them and with patience and kindness. Like, I can't believe you believe that. No, not that. But patience and kindness and understanding encourage them in the truth. And then we are also to help rescue those from false teaching, save others, snatching them out of the fire. The first person mentioned has doubts that are troubling them. But this person has already left the church and is going somewhere where God's truth is not being taught. And snatching them out of the fire would indicate they are not a believer, that they're in danger of suffering and hell for forever. So there are some people that, you know what, you just have to be more aggressive in trying to share the gospel and forget about being too concerned about being offensive. I mean, if somebody fell in a fire pit, you're not going to have a conversation about, can I help you out? Are you hurt? No, you just grab and run. And with some people, that is what we need to do with the gospel message and share with them and to try to get them out of this error that they're embarking in. They need to hear the truth. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by faith, by the flesh rather. <clears throat> there is a warning here in trying to reach out to those 
who give themselves over to heresy. Be careful not to be harmed yourself. There seem to be people who are new, uh, these seem to be people rather, who are new in a false religion. And there must be a caution that you don't find yourself in danger. There's a great warning. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. There is no place for spiritual pride, thinking I could never be influenced by such foolish error. No, be very, very careful. That brings us to the great doxology that Jude ends this book with. In a heart of praise to his God, God is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This is not a reference to when he keeps us from falling into a deeper sin. This is the amazing truth that God keeps his own. He protects his own from ever falling into apostasy. A true, genuine believer will not walk away from Jesus or reject the gospel permanently. How do we know that's the case? Because believers are kept by the power of God. I love 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God <clears throat> through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We are protected. Our salvation is protected. You know what? If you have trusted Christ in his death on the cross, that it was the payment for your personal sin, and the only reason that you are still saved today right now is because the Lord is keeping you saved. Amen. If it were up to us, we would have lost it the day we believed. <clears throat> it is only the Lord that keeps us from falling. And so we should have hearts full of such praise to him. That is why each believer can contend for the faith. God has imputed his righteousness to every believer. And that's why we will stand in his presence blameless. We will never stand in anything of our own. That's the great transaction at the cross. He took our sin. He gave us his righteousness. We must praise him because of that. And we praise him because he is our Savior, the only God, our Savior. There's only one God, one Savior. One, uh, only he has made it possible to be delivered from our sins. And it is only through Jesus our Lord. All roads and all religions do not lead to God. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. Through his death we can know our sins have been paid for. How can we not praise him? No matter how rotten our day is, this we can be thankful and praising him for. Amen. To Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. How great is our God, who is ruler over all. Amen. He has all majesty and authority. He always has and he always will. So as we close this short, brief study for two weeks, my prayer is that each of us will determine to be conscious of his presence throughout each day and night, thinking and meditating on his amazing love and sacrifice, and giving him praise in our hearts, and killing our flesh that loves to complain. You have to change that. I have to change that. That is a bad, sinful habit. So make sure you are his child, that you are abiding in his word, so you do not become swayed by the countless errors that keep bombarding our culture. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for this book that you included in scripture. I thank you for the truths that we've seen, the warnings that we've seen. Lord, help us not to ever be spiritually proud to think we're beyond ever being duped by somebody's error. Lord, I thank you for the truth of scripture. Lord, help us to measure everything we see, everything we hear, every experience we have in light of the truth of your word, because your word is truth. Lord, I thank you for your amazing love that you would die for wretched people like us who were your enemies, who could care less about you, who rebelled and lived selfishly, and you loved us unconditionally. And you sought us, and you saved us, and you will take us to your presence one day. Lord, how can we ever thank you enough? Thank you for the study we've had this last year. I ask for your protection on all these women as we go our separate ways for the next few months. I pray that you will bring us back along with many others to study your precious word in September. In Jesus' name, amen.